Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 304. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. Today, we've got a really interesting, important, and frankly, challenging conversation on the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm sitting down with Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And I fully expect this conversation to challenge you at times to even maybe frustrate you uh, and confuse you. And so I want to challenge you as someone who either has been listening to the podcast for just a little while, maybe just stumbled upon it, or with whom I've built a relationship for years now, to trust me when I say listening to this entire conversation is absolutely critical for how we are to move forward and progress as a society, but especially as women uh, in dismantling white supremacy. So if you consider yourself someone who's not necessarily, you know, thinking about racism all the time or not necessarily an activist or uh, a progressive person per se, but you are someone who thinks racism is bad, you know, this conversation helps push back on the idea that it's that black and white, that it's good and bad, and helps us view each and every one of us as a part of a system of white supremacy. And so I challenge my listeners, especially white women listeners, to give this conversation a shot, to not start this and turn it off when it starts to feel a little uncomfortable, but to really listen and listen well. And if you feel like shouting back at the podcast midway, fine, do it, but don't stop listening. And if you feel like you didn't get it after the first try, give it another listen because the topics that Robin D'Angelo covers in her book, White Fragility, really take challenging our own sense of identity. It really doesn't click overnight. I I know that I've wrestled with her book, and I I really did try in my interview here to push back on her, to challenge her, to have her really break it down and really explain to us what she means by some of the very controversial things that she has to say. So uh, this Black History Month especially, I wanted to take a moment to look at racism as white people's problem to solve. And so this conversation uh, is a really important step in that direction. To give you a little bit of background on, oh, and actually before I give you some background on Robin, I should also give you a bit of a trigger warning. So not only do we discuss racism and white supremacy and violence perpetrated against people of color throughout history, uh, from enslaving people to lynching, Uh, in America's history, but also we talk about um, issues related to sexual violence, rape, uh, sexual assault. So there are times in which that those kinds of topics will come up in this conversation. If that doesn't feel safe for you, this probably isn't the right time for you to listen to this conversation. So loud and clear trigger warning for everybody who's listening. All right. Before we go any further, let me share with you a little bit about Dr. Robin D'Angelo. So Dr. Robin D'Angelo is an affiliate associate professor of education at the University of Washington. In addition, she holds two honorary doctorates. She has numerous publications and books on whiteness, racism, and social justice. In 2011, she coined the term white fragility, and her book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, was released in June of 2018 and debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, where it has remained for over two years 
and been translated into 10 languages. In addition to her academic work, Dr. D'Angelo has also been a consultant and trainer for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice, and I'm so delighted to be speaking with her here today. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. So I know we are in a pretty interesting moment in time uh, as it pertains to race in America with the Biden administration uh, stepping in, acknowledging systemic racism is a pervasive issue. I remember at inauguration in President Biden's inaugural address, he used the words white supremacy right next to terrorism which I thought from, to myself, even four or eight years ago, we would not have likely heard that. No. How do you begin to break down what systemic racism even looks like in this country right now? Yeah. Well, first, let me say, I, I, you know, like you, I was amazed and heartened and wasn't sure I'd ever see that in my lifetime. It's so important. Uh, and we are going to be called upon to grapple with those concepts. And I think most people maybe have a loose understanding of systemic racism, mm. uh, but would be hard pressed to actually articulate it, you know, to other people. So this is the way that I explain it. Absolutely everybody has bias, right? There's no human objectivity. And I'd like to think that most people understand the concept of implicit bias. And that is that we just can't help but absorb stereotypes and prejudgments. Uh, they're circulating around us. We have our own kind of idiosyncrasies, but they're, but you know, the stereotypes we absorb are very consistent. When Donald Trump talks about certain groups of people in certain uh, ways, it's not as if we've never heard these things before. So everybody has bias. And everybody acts on it. In other words, everybody discriminates. Uh, the way you see the world, consciously or not, uh, will drive the way you respond or act in the world. Um, systemic racism happens when one group's collective bias is backed with legal authority and institutional control. When one group basically controls all of the institutions, sets the standards, creates the definitions, um, that transforms it well beyond just an individual person's bias, and it infuses it as, across the entire society. Mm. It's embedded in the fabric of the society. I want to ask a clarifying question there because some folks would say, yeah, yeah, but we passed the <laughs> Civil Rights Act. What else is there to do? We've, we've amended the Constitution. We've abolished slavery. What do you mean it's in the laws of the land? How is racism systemically upheld if we live in a free market system? Uh, I would say you don't know your history, right? Sure. Uh, and we're not taught our history, uh, and you're also not able to trace that into the present. So anybody who invokes uh, slavery uh, is coming from this idea that you know enslavement ended at that time, and then everything was fine and good to go. Or once civil rights legislation was passed, everything was fine mm -hmm. and we're good to go. We have almost dismantled much of that legislation. That's the first thing, because the people who control the institutions remain in, in power. I'm not sure anyone can look around and say um, that we are post-racial. Sure. It should be very clear <laughs> that we are so no, not post-racial that Obama's presidency did not end racism. Um, I would say that in many ways we look pre-post-civil rights uh, in this country. What Obama's presidency did was... Um, allow resentments that were royal, royally not very much below the surface to erupt. And also, Robin, we've seen a rise in white supremacy in a very overt way, not just articulated through the election of Donald Trump, but also this past January's insurrection attempts in the Capitol, right? We've seen a newfound, I would almost say, emboldening uh, of white supremacist groups uh, who many, I think many well-meaning 
also quite racist people uh, would say are extremists. So it, it is hard to pinpoint and not and not dismiss the argument that, yeah, but those are just a few kooky folks who still, you know, fly the Confederate flag. This is what you're talking about is much more omnipresent in, in, in the water we swim in. Yes. Well, yes. By every measure across every institution, black and brown people are at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And yet virtually all white people will say, I'm not racist. Right. So some, something's going on. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, and it's, it's so much deeper than this simplistic idea that a racist uh, is someone who consciously, intentionally doesn't like people based on race. Is, you know, doesn't like them, is aware of that, and wants to hurt them. Mm. You know, when, when people take exception to my claim that all white people have internalized racist ideology, uh, all white people on some level are invested in the status quo of racism, it's comfortable, it benefits us, um, and all white people act in various ways on that absorption. Um, you know, people get mighty upset at that. Yeah. But then I would push back and say, well, tell me what your definition of a racist is. Mm. What is the criteria by which you would grant, okay, that person's racist? And it, it pretty much is, you know, nothing short of a white hood. Right. And again, look at our society. We have racism. So we have to change our question from if I've absorbed this ideology if I have been shaped by racism uh, from the very water I swim in every day of my life called my society um, to how have I absorbed it and what does it look like in my life? But mm-hmm. we can't we can't change that question to a more meaningful one if we insist that only mean bad people could ever participate in racism. Right. So you, you said something earlier about, you know, really racist people or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say, you yeah. know, I'm a really yeah. racist, you said really racist and well-intended. I'm a really racist and well-intended white person. Right. Uh, I have racism and I, I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. <laughs> um, but I got it and I act on it in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, no, I would actually say not one moment of the racism I have perpetrated in my, in my life has been intentional, but it still has caused harm. Don't we want to know that? Right. I, I want to pause here and really dig into that because I can already okay. hear like most of the white people in my life scratching their heads and turning off this podcast and saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, this isn't me. So let's let's break this down because in your book, White Fragility, you really spend a good amount of time in the beginning chapters of helping us get to the point of switching from, am I racist? To, okay, how am I perpetuating racism? How yes. am I being racist? Which is an important mindset shift that takes a significant amount of time to make. And the first and most important difference that I think you really highlight is what you call the good bad binary. How has that been? How have we all been indoctrinated to believe racist equals bad? And what does that do to prevent white people in particular from beginning the work of analyzing our racism? It's so effective, right? So pre-civil rights era, it was fairly socially acceptable to just come out and say white people are superior and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the social order is as it was meant to be. Right. Uh, but post-civil rights, uh, not so acceptable, right? Uh, people saw uh, black people being dragged from lunch counters and fire hoses and dogs and and many were appalled by those images and that became the archetype of a racist right uh and if you were against that and you know who wouldn't be or most people would be um then you were not racist mm. so a racist became a very immoral mean-spirited ignorant person um, and it became mutually exclusive to be a well-intended, moral, good person and also complicit with racism. Mm-hmm. And it also set up white people to be extremely defensive about any suggestion. You know, it's a pretty tight hook. On the one hand, I believe that most 
well-intended white people would never want to say or do anything racially hurtful, right? Right. And a lot of times that's why we're so quiet or careful in these conversations. <laughs> well, what if I accidentally say the wrong thing right. and somebody thinks I'm racist, right? And yet, how do we respond when somebody says, hey, you just did say the wrong thing. Let me tell you how and why that was the wrong thing. How do we respond? Oh, how dare you suggest, yeah. right? It, it just becomes impossible uh, for us to look at or hold the possibility mm. um, that maybe we don't understand. And again, that goes back to the good, bad binary in that if you accept this binary that to be racist is to be bad and a bad person, mm -hmm. then of course it holds true that your response to being offered feedback on your racism is how dare you call me such a dirty word, right? How right. dare you call me a bad, amoral person? And what is the first, I think, prerequisite to even having these conversations is to reject that binary, right? Is to say that right. there is such a thing as racism not being attached to the moral good-bad uh, spectrum, so to speak, right? Well, yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things that have really been useful to me, now I am completely uh, comfortable identifying as a feminist. <laughs> it breaks my heart how many uh, younger women won't identify as a feminist. And I'm happy to report um, that that is not me. <laughs> open feminist. Good. I got a feminist notebook in front of me that says feminist on it. So I feel you. <laughs> Good. And so, it, and I know that the majority of the audience are, are um, you know, cisgender yeah. women. People identify as women in some way. Um and it, it's really useful. I mean, how much unconscious sexism have you experienced from men? Right. Uh, and how open have you ever found men to be on feedback about their unaware sexism? Mm. Well, uh, I have not found them to be very open. <laughs> right? Right. Like, um, let me tell you how that was sexist. Does not usually I, go over well with a please continue. Right? Yes. It, totally. Right. Or would you please stop talking over me? Would you stop mansplaining to me? Mm. Right. Um, well, we're doing the same things across race. And so rather than use uh, sexism as a way out, right? Well, I'm a minority too. And, you know, no, use it as a way in, right? Um, change the roles in your head when you're struggling and feeling defensive with something. And imagine that your defensiveness now about that is coming from a man. Usually it becomes pretty clear, you know, and there's another piece and that is, I have never met a white person who doesn't have an opinion on racism. Uh, and usually it's pretty darn uh, emotional, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet, my goodness, the lack of humility. Like, we are not educated on racism in this country. Right. Um, we could graduate uh, from you know, a, a PhD program. And, you know, most of us who have any kind of college education graduated without ever once discussing systemic racism. Right. Yeah. We don't, we don't talk about it in K through 12 education. We're taught by overwhelmingly white teachers who themselves don't talk about it. And yet we feel like our opinions are valid. We know all we need to know. I disagree with you. I'm turning this program off. Wow. I mean, have some humility, people. Yeah. I mean, this, <laughs> this is the most complex, nuanced issue of the last several hundred years, and you don't know everything <laughs> right. you need to know. I am encouraged by what has happened, what has transpired in the past few years, and the resulting... Uh, sort of echo that white people are starting to really hear, which is, okay, I cannot put the onus on black and brown people to educate me on racism. So I do see a lot of folks picking up books, picking up, you know, doing their due diligence, doing their research. Uh, but I think we have 
really been taught to think not of ourselves as white people, but to think of ourselves as individuals. And how dare you generalize? Oh my goodness. I'm just thinking, can you imagine trying to give a man feedback on his mansplaining and him saying, how dare you talk to me as if I'm a man? How dare you proceed as if my being a man has any meaning whatsoever or any significance uh, to this dynamic that's going on between us, right? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say about that. That would be uh, outrageous. Um, So it's not a zero sum game. That's, that's the other thing where you can only read one person's work and then you're done. Right. Um, But our voice has the white perspective, the white role in all of this has been missing for far too long. You know, when we, when we go to study race, if you will, we always turn to people of color. Okay. Teach us about racism. Tell us about what you experience. And then sadly, because we lack humility, we often sit back and say, well, actually don't agree with what you just told me. Uh, Or I don't think that's legitimate. Um, uh, that that's quite the setup. Um, so we have to be part of the puzzle because we are part of the puzzle and actually a big part. Mm. Um, but if it doesn't result in different action, uh, then it's pretty meaningless. You know, when I used to, mm-hmm. when I would do a workshop, go around the room, you know, you have to come up with some kind of closing exercise. <laughs> so I'd go around <laughs> the room. What's one thing you're going to do different as a result? And I can't tell you how many white people would say, I'm going to continue to reflect on this. And I started mm. finally just saying, well, and how will people of color know that you continued to reflect on this? Mm-hmm. Right. What mm-hmm. what's going to be different? Um, what what action are you going to take uh, in the world? And for white listeners thinking right now, well, what am I supposed to do? Just Google it. OK, it's 2021. <laughs> you know, come on, go Google it. And we're going to we're also going to go there too in, <laughs> in just a few more questions. But what I what I struggle with, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of competing themes in in white fragility. Uh, and there's a lot of, I mean, this is really deep thinking <laughs> to sort of detach yourself from white supremacy requires rejecting individualism, yep. right? Of not saying, okay, I am this one special shiny person that my race does matter. Uh, my race does inform my worldview. I'm viewing the world from a white racial yep. worldview. And Yet we don't want to have white centrality either. So talk to me about that. Yeah. It, 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 okay. So um, I took th- three notes here to speak to. One was mm-hmm. individualism, white supremacy, <laughs> um, and white centrality. So let's start with white centrality because this is the master's tools dilemma. Uh, Audre Lorde mm. had a beautiful quote: "How do you dismantle the master's house when you only have the master's tools?" In and so even. In my work to challenge whiteness, to get white people to see that we are looking out at the world through a particular position. We are not just people, okay, uh, and that it shapes our lives. Um, I, I am centering whiteness as I do that and, and as my voice is listened to. Yet again, like every other authority put in front of us, granted credibility. But to not use this position, this platform to do that when I know that people will hear me differently, uh, when I do have an insider status and there's a way that I can call us in that is specific, unique, and different than the way that, say, Black folks can call us in, both are needed, um, that's not acceptable either for me not to use that position. So I'm not sure there's a way around it. I think of it as how do I be a little less white? <laughs> and and less white for me means less oppressive, you know, less ignorant, less arrogant in my ignorance, less silent, less complicit, right? How do I, how do I navigate that reality of whiteness? Um, and part of that is challenging this um, incredibly precious ideology of individualism, which is, you know, like, it's the idea that if I don't know you, I cannot make any claims about you, 
right? Right. And and this is where, you know, as a sociologist, I, I would say, uh, well, I actually <laughs> can. <laughs> These are describable, observable patterns. Patterns exist. Patterns are real. Uh, if you are an exception to that pattern, uh, great. Um, but the moment I offer you that you could be an exception to that pattern, in my experience, you'll take it. Right. So how about we go over to the rule? Right. Let's let go of the exceptions. Let's go over and look at the rule. By virtue of our whiteness, we could predict whether you and I and our mothers were going to survive our births. That's profound. The meaning of being in this social group called white people is profound and we have to be willing to look at it. So anything that a white person sees as an exception, you know, that somehow makes them not racist, less racist, ask yourself how being white shaped how you experience that exception. You're, you're queer and non-binary and you've put up with heterosexism and transphobia your whole life. Okay. Well, you're also white. Talk to me about anti-blackness in the queer trans community. You're kind of alluding to privilege not being not there. White privilege not being non-existent just because you have other hardships, right? So... You know, whatever other identities may put you in the category of a marginalized person, yes. or if you're just a blue collar worker, white person who feels like the capitalist system has not served you very well, that does not make you not complicit in per perpetuating white supremacy. And I think that's a really important and hard message that our politics has completely failed to get across. Yes. You know, think about it. I, I think people hear privilege and power and think they're supposed to feel powerful and privileged. And most of us don't relate to that feeling. So think about it as the absence of struggle, a non-issue of struggle in an area that is profoundly an issue of struggle for other people. And that you not having that struggle actually helps you navigate the ones that you do have. I don't know how anyone can, uh, well, they can try. Look me in the eyes and say to be black and poor is the same to be as to be white and right, poor. Right, right. Uh, and so look at it in that way, right, that the, that these these things complicate each other. I, I, you're reminding me of a conversation. Well, so much of this talk has already reminded me of a few different conversations I've had with other white people. Um, one is with my mom who is a labor and delivery nurse. And I said to her, hey, mom, what's the deal with the rising rates of black women's mortality in labor? What's going on there? And her first response was, we do a very good job at my labor and delivery unit mm -hmm. of taking care of women. And I don't see color. Uh, you know, the black women patients I have love me. And I'm not saying this to throw shade at my mom, who is a very good person. Talk to me about how that is a demonstration of white fragility. Talk to me about what white fragility looks like. What is it? It is such an important yeah. term that you've coined. Let's unpack that for a moment. Well, I mean, sadly, and this is this is not personal to your mother, and this is probably one of the, another thing that can be really useful for us as white people. There may be someone who is who is manifesting a pattern, right? So your mom is a great example of you know someone who uses colorblindness as evidence that they're free of racism. So she's just a stand-in, <laughs> uh, not personal. But that's really dangerous because it's well-documented and I don't believe anybody who is contributing to the outcome uh, of much higher mortality, maternal and infant mortality rates for black women is consciously doing that, but something's going on and it's well-documented and she has to be willing to look at it and grapple with it. And let's go back to sexism. Imagine if you're trying to talk about something that impacts women at a greater level, right? Um, I can't think at the top of my head, but, and you're trying to explain that to a man and he just looks at you and says, I don't see you as a woman. I, I never noticed you were a woman. I, that's patently ridiculous. 
of of course you do and you did and even if you're not consciously thinking as you're talking to me you're a woman it's in the peripheral it's changing even how you talk to me it also just seems a little unrelated it's not it's not that doesn't deny the facts right that doesn't refute the facts just because you're not seeing me doesn't mean the world isn't seeing me as a woman so yeah it's like but I would say you are seeing me as a woman right like and and you need to because there's a history of harm between our groups. So so the example I often think of, if I'm in an elevator with a man, right? It's just me and a strange man and the elevator door closes. I do not want him complimenting my appearance in that elevator. I don't want him saying anything about my body or my dress or what I'm yeah. wearing, right? And I would like to think he would know better than to do that when I'm alone as a woman, that that is potentially intimidating and threatening. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm his sister, his partner, his daughter, maybe he, yeah, yeah, go on. Do you like my dress? Does it look good on me? Does it flatter my figure? That's different. But he needs to hold uh, our different positions when we're alone in that elevator. And and it's similar. I mean, even if your mother would just, she's sure she doesn't do it, but she she needs to understand that that black woman is acutely aware. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, of the history of harm uh, in that field. Um, and so how can your mom put her at ease or reassure her right. or be thoughtful, thoughtful about that? I, I also think of uh, just a quick story here. A friend of mine who is a police officer, a white woman police officer in a suburb of Denver, Colorado, which does not have a great track record for the, for the record nope. uh, for how we treat black and brown folks in Colorado. And this past summer, we were on a hike together with a bunch of friends, and I was just striking up a conversation with her about race in America and how her policing was going and what's happening in in her uh, unit. Like, what are they doing about it? And I was asking pretty innocuous questions, and her first response to me was, well, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Oh. And I was like, oh, girl, we got some work to do. This is the beginning of the hike, by the way. <laughs> so it was quite, wow. a, quite a lot of work to do. But that is so common. My mom's response, my friend's response, white fragility kind of pops up in a lot of different forms. How do we, how do we hear yeah. that? How does it manifest? Well, so the first thing I want to I want to say to any listener who I mean that maybe they don't use the no bones I call that the no bone uh, <laughs> argument, but I bet you they use things like I I work in a very diverse uh, office, um, you know I had a black roommate in college, uh, more progressive white white people use uh, proximity, right? So the two examples you just gave me are what I call colorblind. Um, but, you know, you're also going to hear the, you know, proximity evidence. So the first thing I just have to say to anyone listening is anybody who understands systemic racism is not only not convinced by that evidence, they're rolling their eyes. Mm-hmm. You just told them that you were clueless on this topic and you also just told them that you're likely to be very defensive if that gets challenged so i mean wouldn't you want to know that wouldn't you want to know that on some level you're you're making a fool of yourself with people who are educated on this topic all right so that that leads to white fragility White fragility is not just defensiveness. I mean, it's it's natural to feel somewhat defensive when somebody points out something you're saying or doing that's problematic. It's It becomes white fragility when you use that defensiveness to block any further engagement or growth. You dig in deeper and, and you um, hang on with everything you have to your limited worldview. And, and it, if, if you could see me right now, um, I'll act it out. <laughs> I'm crossing my arms and I'm saying, well, then forget it. I'm not saying anything. Right. If I can't say anything right, I'm not saying anything at all. Here comes like <laughs> okay. the PC culture, the cancel culture, the rant against right. nobody can be p- imperfect publicly anymore. What's the point? Retreat. Right. Right. And, and and you um, have just, you know, guaranteed no further growth, again, on the most nuanced, complicated issue of our time. Mm-hmm. 
I, I, I just, we're back to humility, right? And when you understand it as a system, that changes all of this. You, then you're actually, oh my goodness, uh, tell me tell more. Tell me more, right? right. Like, it, I want to know yeah. that. I didn't realize that. Oh, that's so interesting. Let me think about that. I think that. you... you- share another term in the book that I almost think of as like the antidote to, or the opposite almost of white fragility, which is racial stamina. And that, that to me, at least I read it as the willingness to be really uncomfortable and potentially called out uh, Mm -hmm. and, and curious, right? Open-minded, willing to hear someone out because I think something that's really important for white folks to take away from this conversation is what a gift feedback can be, no matter what form it comes in, especially on racism, it's going to be uncomfortable to get that feedback. But think about the risks someone else is taking in giving a white person racial feedback, knowing full well most people are going to express white fragility, defensiveness, retreat, anger, frustration, you know, horror. So your book really resonates on that front of like, let's flex our racial stamina, let's up our racial stamina a little bit and be willing to sit in that discomfort. Is that what you're also trying yeah, to encourage? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, it, it's, we're so rarely out of our comfort zone that we, we just fall apart. But the falling apart, the fragility, uh, is not fragile in its impact. You know, it it marshals behind it the weight of institutional control, all of that, right? And so it, it actually functions as a way to police people of color into not giving us feedback. Um, they risk losing the relationship. They often do lose the relationship. The person starts avoiding them or withdrawing. Uh, so, Or they're, they beca- risk being seen as not nice. <laughs> oh, sure. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, it becomes so, so punitive for them yeah. um, that oftentimes they just don't bother. But, but – you know, you don't have as close a relationship as you think you have. Yeah. Right. Um, Talk to me specifically about white women tears, because (laughs) that is an interesting section in the book. And one that I think the white women listeners of this podcast should be especially aware of the history around. So what does that form of white fragility look like? And why is it so harmful? Yeah. You know, and a lot of people I think have misunderstood that uh, in, that chapter and just kind of, oh, okay, so this means white women can never cry, right? No, but our tears do have an impact Mm -hmm. on the situation. And so we want to be thoughtful about what are we crying about? (laughs) When are we crying? How much space are we taking up when we cry? Um, What are the consequences uh, socially of, of our tears? And because there's a deep history of Black people being harmed when white women, you know, cry or, you know, metaphorically show distress. I, I would like to use Amy Cooper as an example. And and again, I don't, I'm not saying Amy Cooper is more or less racist than I am, right? So it's not so much about Amy Cooper, but it's what a beautiful example visually of, of white tears, right? Um, that Amy Cooper was the dog park lady. Is that? Yes. yes. Okay. She went yes. viral maybe six to 12 months about, ago um, yes. about saying, you know, with her camera on, put a leash yeah. on your dog. I am afraid. And she was freaking out and she called the cops, right? Well, a black man um, was bird watching in Central Park. Chris Cooper, no no relation. And a- uh, Amy Cooper had her dog loose mm-hmm. and he oh, asked right. her to put her dog on the that's leash. Right. So she's breaking the rules. He asks her to follow the rules and she loses it Mm -hmm. pretty seriously. I mean, if you watch it, she becomes more and more and more unraveled uh, as he kind of stands his ground and just says, you know, please put your dog on a leash, Mm -hmm. which is the rule here. Um, And she threatens him that she's going to call the police and she's going to tell them Mm. that an African-American man is threatening her. She even before she calls. So she's not like, you know, they don't say describe the suspect. And then she says it's an African-American man before she calls. She tells him. So she knows perfectly well what she's doing. But she's also losing it and crying. And uh, as she says, she's 
at risk. She's charging towards him. That's not usually something you do when you feel hmm. threatened. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Chris Cooper could have died that day. Right. And if you put us back even a few years, odds are he would have died that day. And she, you know, she had to know that. Um, and, and so that, that's just that history of white women claiming to be distressed. There, there have been many cases where white women have, I mean, I even hate to say it, but killed their children and then said a black man did this. Yeah. Right? I mean, you go back um, to Emmett Till in your book and say, yes. let's not forget that the lynching of Emmett Till, which is so horrible and so widespreadly, widely understood because of his mother's choice to have an open casket funeral. Yes. Uh, that yes. was all instigated by a white woman saying he flirted with me. Yes. So yes. when white women cry in a cross racial environment, let's say at work with a black colleague, those tears have a long and very painful history, whether or not we're aware of that history that shifts all the attention in the room to, Oh, don't cry damsel in distress. Let me care for this white woman who's seriously experiencing harm in some way, as opposed to uh, any kind of discussion of the matter at hand, right? It's almost like an escape right. tactic. Yes. And again, none of this has to be conscious or intentional, right. but that is how it functions. That's the key question for you to ask yourself. How does this function? Does this, does this help um, uh, break up? Uh, and challenge systemic racism or does it uphold it? Mm. You know, I think it's worth noting um, that I think it's fair to say many white women would never cry if they were one of the only white, uh, only women in a room full of men. Right. Like we know not to cry. Right. I might go in the bathroom and cry, but I'm not going to cry in front of them because I'm acutely aware of the power difference. I'm acutely aware of how I'm going to be dismissed if, as I do that, if I do that. But it's across race. Oh, then we feel a little freer to, to shed those tears. I think that's worth looking at. But the other thing, because we don't know our history, is we can say, oh, my God, Emmett Till, how long ago was that? Um, it only takes one incident to invoke this, you know, generational terror. You know, if you told me that last night in some neighborhood in Colorado, a woman was raped and killed. I'm going to get scared today in Seattle. Right. I'm going to think about it right. when I'm taking a walk tonight. You, I, I only need one incident somewhere to invoke a lifetime uh, of, you know, fear as a woman of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So, so this is why this is maybe gets back to your mom. If she could be more thoughtful about, about that reality for those patients. Right. right. Um, and if, if she notices something mm -hmm. or if the woman expresses that to her, not to dismiss it, but to say, I hear you, I'm going to pay attention, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you're treated as anyone else would, I got, I got your back. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just heard those words, right. you'd be like, okay. Yeah. And in my in my mom, just to give my mom a shout out here, yeah. <laughs> she's totally like an amazing nurse, and she oh, I'm sure she, she does do that. I think a lot, but it's important to know that her black patients are not experiencing the same degree of fear as her white patients. Period. Full stop. That's just a different level of fear, uh, and that fear is totally valid and well founded. Um, mm -hmm. I've got two more questions for you, Robin. Okay. One is. Would you share a story with us that you share in your book about Angela, I think a, a okay. colleague of yours, about how to actually handle it when you, a well-intended white person, uh, even one who is so read in and so very educated around race, make mistakes, right? Make racial harm, uh, perpetuate racial harm, regardless of intention, the impact was one of harm. How did you rectify what happened with Angela? Because I thought that was a really good illustration of what actually to do as a white person. Yeah. The important point there is that I, I'm not going to be free of my conditioning. It's just not going to happen in my lifetime, but I, I have made incredible progress. <laughs> uh, I do it much less often. I'm not generally defensive when I do it. And I have very good repair skills. That matters. 
less harm matters. I just want yeah. the listeners to hear that. It, it, it's not the end of the world if you get feedback that you stepped in it. Uh, it it's, it's an opportunity for growth and to actually potentially deepen the relationship. So um, maybe just because of time, sure. I made a, a joke um, that kind of positioned me as cooler than other white people. I get it. They don't. Um, and I got some feedback indirectly that it had offended uh, a black woman in, in the meeting that I was in. And so I needed to repair that. Um, and so I called her. I called her. And the first thing I said was, um, would you be willing to grant me the opportunity to repair the racism that I perpetrated in that meeting last week? Mm -hmm. And I very deliberately put it that way so that she would know where I was coming from, what she could expect and make a informed choice about whether she wanted to meet with me because I had, I had acted like a bit of an asshole in that meeting. So I had demonstrated nothing to her that said I had any skills. <laughs> um, and for all she knew, she was just going to get me defending myself or explaining. Notice that I didn't say if you thought there was racism, I just owned it and asked her if she would be willing to allow me to try to repair it. And she said, yes. Um, and we sat down and I owned what I had done. I explained to the best of my understanding, you know, how I understood it to be problematic. You know, it's great to say, I'm sorry, that's better than nothing. But it goes a long way to say, and here's what I now understand was problematic about what I did. Yes. That goes a long yes. way. Yes. So I did that. And then um, I asked her, you know, was there anything I missed? Is there anything more? Uh, there was. <laughs> uh, and she laid that out for me. I owned that. Um, and then, you know, kind of the final thing was is there anything that needs to be said or heard so that we can move forward? And what she said to me was really powerful. She said, yeah, if we're going to work together, you, you will run your racism at me again. So the next time you do, would you like your feedback publicly or privately? Which I just, I just love. I, I'd like to, that's a fairly radical thing to say to a white person. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to believe that I had at that point showed her that I could hold that. And what I understood her to be saying is you're white. You know, this, this <laughs> is going to come again. out. Yeah. This stuff is going to come out. So when it does, how should we proceed? And I'm willing to offer you two options, which was incredibly generous. I think most white people would say, oh, God, give it to me in private. Um, given who I am and the work that I do, I said, please give it to me in public. If it, you know, if it happens yeah. in public, yeah. go for it. it. It would be an important opportunity for me to model, you know, how to receive it without defensiveness. And, and that's good. For, I, I think it's good for other white people to see. And to see that, you know, it, we're all okay. <laughs> um, it's not the end of the world. And so we move forward and we, we actually had a better relationship. That doesn't mean go, go around and step on people's toes right. to have a better relationship. But I just really you know. appreciated that part of the book because it did. I think a lot of the book spends a lot of time saying this is how not to do it. And I think that can be hard for white people. Just, I mean, obviously relatively hard uh, when yeah. when navigating our very low levels of racial stamina. It is helpful to have a little bit more of a model there of what to do. And one of the other steps you took that I noticed in the book was really helpful is that before you even approached Angela to, you yeah. know, to ask to have that repairing conversation, you talked it out, you processed with a white person <laughs> to not put the burden again on a person of color uh, to help you navigate your feelings about the situation and how to navigate it. Yes. Right. I mean, did I have some feelings? Yes, I did. Right. right. Of course I of course. did. I was embarrassed. I was, Oh my God. Um, but I didn't want to go to her with those feelings and make her have to bear witness right, to them. Right. And also kind of inadvertently be seeking her forgiveness. Right. right? I mean, let's be honest. There's a part of us that, oh, tell me you still love me. <laughs> yes. You know, and that, that is not yeah. fair. So I called someone who um, I think has very strong skills, right? I did not call my sister who would have said, <laughs> oh, she, 
she's overreacting, yeah. right? Um, I called my friend Christine. I, I, I had a cry about it. Yeah. I cried. Um, I released some of that att- uh, tension. And then, you know, we put our heads together and I got clear and I felt, okay, I've, I'm ready. Right. And just and a reminder that white woman tears in a call with another white woman are not the same as white woman tears in that meeting with Angela. So, Oh, yeah. It would have been terrible, I think, if I had cried in of that Of course, meeting. yeah. Now, but that also doesn't mean never cry in front <laughs> right, of black people. Right. Because then we look cold and uncaring. Sure, sure. I've been in many workshops where black people and other people of color have shared stories that just break your heart. Um, and yeah, I couldn't not cry, but I cry quietly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, I don't take up all the room and, you know, and if people start wanting to comfort me, I just, Hey, I'm okay. But you know, I moved to tears. I caught, we have a Um, norm at our events back when those were a thing at boss up. We call it, we call it talk through the tears. Like just go ahead and keep functioning. Feel free to cry, but like, don't stop (laughs) being functional. Um, and everybody else doesn't have to comfort you right. either, right? You're okay, right. but it's a release. It's actually really healthy. Yeah. And, and you know, I think we should ask ourselves, why are our hearts not breaking every day oh, I know. I know. at this, it's true. right? Last question for you, Robin. I've been indulgent <laughs> with your time already, but I could talk okay. to you about this all day. You have uh, another radical statement, one of many in your work which is that progressive white people are actually some of the worst when it comes to perpetuating racial harm to the like a lot of progressive white people listening to this help us understand what that means and what we have to do about it uh, well, it's also a really good setup for my next book, which is coming out in June. Exciting. And it's called um, Nice Racism, <laughs> How uh, Progressive White People Perpetrate Racial Harm. Mm. Um, the reason I think that it can be the most damaging on a daily basis is that we are the ones that black people and other people of color are likely to be around right. on a daily basis. They're not hanging around with Steve Bannon and, you know, <laughs> the Cuban uh, odds are right. they're not. Right. Those, those people are, are terrifying. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I can only imagine. And it's real, you know, the growth of that explicit white supremacy. Um, but on a daily basis, we are the ones that cause them to go home exhausted, Yeah, you know, and it's in some ways more insidious because you can't get your hands on it. Right. And, and, um, the gaslighting is so intense and, um, the, the need for white progressives to maintain their self-identity as white progressives can cause us to refuse that feedback and spend a lot of time explaining and, um, you know, all the evidence we give. I I guess white progressives are my specialty because I am a white progressive. And so I'm speaking to what I know. We play a huge part. Whenever I say that, white progressives uh, probably cause the most daily harm. Um, people color my audience are nodding and you know amen and <laughs> right. right so there's something there it doesn't look like you know this form but it it looks like this form so let's let's look at how we do it what it looks like from us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well it sounds like a, a book's worth of work <laughs> Well, let's let's imagine you've we've got a a movement, a feminist movement, sure. and a whole bunch of men want to join it. Mm. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you like them to have also be simultaneously be doing some work on their patriarchy and their, you know, because they, what are they going to do? They're going to take over. I mean, you know, ask ask women what happens when men join their groups. Um, there are going to be lots of ways that they drive the women crazy, even as they're involved in wanting to help. So it reminds me of a man wearing a T-shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like. Yeah. You, ever, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, I have two reactions. Wow, <laughs> that's a brave T-shirt for you to be wearing. Good for you. And the other reaction is, yeah, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> right. Like, let's not give him too yeah, much credit. Yeah. yeah. The t-shirt is I've step known, one. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've known some men who call themselves feminists and I definitely don't see them It's also feminist. kind of like how the bar is set very low for 
dads <laughs> compared to moms. They're like, oh yes. my God, he picked up his child at daycare. What an involved dad. <laughs> Meanwhile, like mom comes every other day and it's just like, yeah, don't be late, you know? So it's just the double standard there is funny. Yes. So you're you're making a parallel between those gender dynamics in the feminist movement versus white people coming in to the racial justice movement, late to the party, not having done the homework, and let's not center ourselves in the movement. Yeah? Yeah. I think about, like, I have an image I show in my work um, that is uh, the House Freedom Caucus. It, it, mm-hmm. It's got Mike Pence and um, Stephen Miller. It's 100% room filled with white men in suits okay yeah and for me it's like the best visual of the intersection between patriarchy and white supremacy and 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 what it means to say one group's bias backed with power right so let's say let's just use sexism now oh my goodness we've got to get some more women into that house freedom caucus so you add even five women into that room uh, that's still going to be a very intimidating room for me. And if you're not also working on the consciousness of all those men who, right. come on, let's be honest, still control the table and get to decide whether you even get to be in the room, then then what you're doing is putting those five women into a hostile room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And so a lot of organizations think, well, let's just add people of color, but we're not simultaneously building the the skills and awareness of the white people that overwhelmed that workplace. And so we wonder, wow, why don't they stay? Because we didn't address the whiteness in the water. And you just added them into an environment that was not supportive of them in a thousand unconscious, unintentional ways. Right. Absolutely. I'm thinking of um, the movie Hidden Figures that, Mm. you know, obviously this is from a different era back in the 60s when – I think the like three or four black women computers at NASA were profiled and centered in this beautiful story, this great story, very true story. And there's no bathroom on the campus where she's working that she can use. That's like the, you add one woman of color to the room, it's not going to be a system change, right? It's not going to change. And it's going to be hard to be that woman in the room. Um, or that right. person of color in the room, or that woman of color in the room. So, especially if you bring up how you're experiencing sexism in the room, right? Right. So, even when we add, in this case, people of color, what happens when next step they say, "Hey, by the way, this is how I'm experiencing racism in this meeting." Uh, good luck, right? <laughs> well, and since you brought up hidden figures, I just have to say, nobody. They have the. Kevin Costner breaking down the sign of the... The bathroom, yeah. That didn't happen in real life, right? That's a great example of the white hero. Oh, my God, yeah. The, like, wow, we needed that little made-up narrative to cheerlead on to justify how much better things have gotten. Wow, that's interesting. Well, Robin D'Angelo, clearly there is so much more to talk about, but we will leave it at that. Tell us where (laughs) our readers, our listeners, and hopefully readers can get our hands on your books and keep up with you. Uh, Just go to my website, which is robindangelo.com. There's a link there to an organization that... um, puts on public workshops of mine, virtual, um, and all post-production revenue goes to racial justice organizations. So if you wanted to be, you know, experiencing one of my workshops, um, there's a link there. Uh, There are links to uh, Black-owned bookstores where you can buy the book Um, and also a a reading group study guide that you can download for free uh, for those who want to talk about it. And then my new book comes out in June. Congrats on all of that important work. I'll link to all of those in the show notes. Robin D'Angelo, thank you so much for being here. You are so welcome. To learn more about the resources we discussed in this episode, head to bossedup.org slash episode 304. That's bossedup.org slash episode 304. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your comments, and you can share your comments in the blog uh, at the bottom of the blog post there, or you can always find me online at Emily Aries and at bossedup.org to share your thoughts with me on social media. I hope you'll share this episode with the white 
people in your world who you think could really use it. And I challenge you to take your practice of anti-racism a step further uh, in educating yourself, in reading White Fragility, in listening to this episode again, if need be, because I know it's a dense, pretty challenging nuanced conversation and starting to talk with more folks in your world about not just if we are accidentally perpetuating racism, but how we are accidentally perpetuating racism and white supremacy in our lives and how we can begin to stop and do better. All right, now to switch gears a little abruptly, I do want to keep our tradition here, even though this is a pretty heavy and challenging episode. I have to end on a lighter note here with our boss move of the week. This one comes in from Katie, who shared this in the Bossed Up Courage community just earlier today. She wrote, my boss move this week was accepting a new great job offer After negotiating my salary up $25,000, I've got to send my thank you note to Emily Aries and Kirby Rosellis, who, if you don't know, is our sales and marketing director here at Bossed Up, for the push that Bossed Up Bootcamp gave me to leave a shit job and the negotiation guide's amazing advice. If you haven't gotten your hands on our totally free guide, our step-by-step guide to negotiating like a boss, head to bossedup.org slash negotiation to learn more. And congratulations, Katie. We are so proud of you. I am so happy to hear how you've advocated your way into a much better job with much better pay. So congrats, boss, and thanks for sharing your boss move. You really never know who you're inspiring to take similar risks and boss up uh, when you share your come up story. That's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback in advance. Please share with me what you thought about this episode. And please share it with people far and wide who you think need to hear this kind of a conversation. Um, I'd love to hear what your biggest takeaway is. Tag me on social media at Emily Aries or at Boss.org. And thanks, as always, for listening, rating, reviewing, and sharing the Boss Up podcast with the folks in your world who need to hear it. 